Right, we're following the Premier's conference underway right now in Victoria. Canada's Premier's gathered face-to-face for the first time in more than two years, and they're meeting in Victoria as we speak. At the top of the agenda, it's uh, Canada's health care system. Under the stress, stress and strains right now, we talked on yesterday's show about the number of small-town emergency hospital rooms that are shutting down in British Columbia. I heard our live coverage there earlier. Premier John Horgan, he's the chair of this meeting happening in Victoria, calling on the federal government to step up with more health care money. And here we go now with the back and forth and the finger pointing going on. The premiers have put out a statement here saying the federal government is only paying 22% of health care costs right now. They want that boosted to 35%. The federal government is disputing those numbers, saying that they're paying a lot more than 22% right now. So at the same time, you've got people faced with shutdown emergency rooms. They can't get a family doctor. You got this kind of back and forth going on between the provinces and the feds. We're paying very close attention to those developments for you today. Let's check in with Andre Picard now, the health columnist at the Globe and Mail, author of the best-selling book, Neglected No More. I recommend his current column for you on the doctor shortage in Canada, especially right here in British Columbia. I've just tweeted it out for you. Give me a follow on Twitter. You'll find it there. Andre, thank you for coming on. Good morning. Andre, first of all, let me ask you about this breaking news right now with this sort of back and forth between the provinces and Ottawa sort of bickering over health care funding. I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, they got the provinces saying we want they want the feds to boost funding to at least 35 percent of health care costs. And the feds more or less saying they're already doing that. What do you make of this? Yeah, I think this is entirely predictable. It's unfortunate we have them sort of bickering about numbers that are really debatable. You can go down a rabbit hole. I could discuss if you want to where these numbers come from. But what they should be talking about is how they're going to fix the system, how yeah. much it would cost, rather than talking about, you know, whose percentage of our tax dollars come from where. We, we have to find a way to fix the system. I don't think it matters to the average taxpayer if it comes from our left pocket or right pocket, federal or provincial, but let's get a decent health care system. Yeah, right on. I totally agree with you. I I really enjoyed your column in the Globe and Mail on the doctor shortage and and what provinces are doing to correct it. Here in British Columbia, as you point out, they've offered incentives, right, for doctors to come here and practice, and it doesn't seem to be working, though? No, these incentives, um, all the provinces have tried them, and they have very limited uh, benefits, because uh, you what you're doing is trying to bribe a someone to do a job that they don't want to do that that the way the job is structured has become untenable and giving them a cash bonus of twenty five thousand dollars that's not going to go very far because they don't want to operate in that fashion for a long term so nobody's going to move to a, a rural community set up a practice uh, for a few thousand dollars it, it's a commitment for a lifetime and it just has to be a better job it has to be better structured yeah, we talked about this on yesterday's show. I spoke to some small-town mayors here in British Columbia who are sick and tired of seeing their hospital emergency rooms get shut down because of a lack of staff. Let me play a clip here for you. This is uh, Merlin Blackwell, who is the mayor of Clearwater here in British Columbia. They've had their emergency room shut down at their hospital this year 20 times, 20 times it's been shut down. And he says, look, he just needs a few more people to stabilize this in his town. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday. I'll get your thoughts. 
we're, we're in this balance right now where we're talking about our communities and we don't want to portray them as crises because we still need to get people to come here. And it's this balance yeah. of, of going, you know, Clearwater, uh, Port McNeil, they're wonderful places. There's so much to do here. It's a beautiful community. I need four people to fix the solution, this problem right now. All I need is four and we're stable. We get back to a good workplace environment. We get back to okay. good scheduling. That's how small the problem is. That's how big the problem is. Yeah, he says he's just they just need four people to get their their emergency room up and running in Clearwater, but Andre, you know, you multiply that by, you know, how many small towns are in the same boat? Uh, the shortage exactly. of professionals. You multiply that by several thousand, and that's yeah. what we have. We have these massive shortages. People don't want to hear this, but the solution in some of those communities is they shouldn't have an emergency room. They can't offer decent emergency care. We have to find a way of doing it in a more regional fashion and having a good local clinic. So it's, I, I think that's a large part of our problem is we just try to keep doing things over and over again that fail rather than restructuring. I, I say this often that every problem we have in healthcare is is structural and it's administrative. We have really good medicine, but we have to get practitioners practicing the right way in the right place to deliver that medicine. Speaking of healthcare columnist Andre Picard from the Globe and Mail. So Andre, you mentioned that it seems like most provinces are trying the same strategy here they're dangling those bonuses and pay pay hikes for doctors please come and work in our province so you got all these provinces kind of bickering and competing for these professionals that are in short supply doesn't seem to be working how do you fix it how do you think this could be made better well i think first of all we have to have a a strategy we have to have a health human resources plan you know every corporation knows how many workers they need where they should be working we don't even have that basic data we just kind of do things by by tradition uh, you know well we had four people in this small town emergency room i guess we need four uh, maybe we needed something totally different so I, th- I think that's the problem is we just are stuck in our our ways of doing things even though they don't work so there has to be this fundamental plan and then there has to be a cost of that plan and figuring out how to pay it rather than this, oh, you pay 22%, we want 35%. That, that's all meaningless until you decide where that money's going to go. How about the shortage of family doctors? This is a key issue here in British Columbia. we got nearly a million people in the province don't have a, a family doctor. We have this fee-for-service model in British Columbia where the doctors who are running kind of a family practice are under a lot of pressure to just cycle as many patients through in a day to get that fee. They've got high overhead costs to run their offices. And a lot of doctors are just saying, you know, to heck with it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do that. How do we fix that? Well, again, it's we change the structure. You know, primary care is really the most essential thing. We have to have a policy like most countries in, in Europe, in Nordic countries, to say everyone has a primary care practitioner, usually a family doctor, but it could be a nurse practitioner. Everyone has that. And you have that as a as a starting point, and you build your system from there. Canada's system is upside down. We invest almost a huge chunk of money in tertiary care in hospitals, and we've forgotten the, the primary care. So if you build a system with a shaky foundation, the whole system is falls apart, and that's exactly what we're seeing in Canada. And this has happened over many years. Uh, what's going on in BC is happening everywhere in Canada. It's a little worse here in BC uh, because rents are higher, because population growth is is larger, so there, there's more pressure. But it's the same issues everywhere, and it's the same solutions. Have a better structure, have a better approach. 
me play another here clip, another clip here for you, Andre of Merlin Blackwell, the mayor of Clearwater here in British Columbia, on yesterday's show, and here he is commenting on uh, the demands from the provinces for more federal health care spending. This is being led by Premier John Horgan right now at this meeting happening in Victoria at this moment. They want the feds to put more money on the table. And here's what this small town mayor had to say about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't always agree with John Horgan, but he's dead on on this one that we need more federal money. I I hate to say it, we're in such a crisis right now that money is going to solve this issue. There are a lot of people in this province that have the RN, uh, LPN uh, doc training that are sitting on the sideline, lab techs as well that have opted out of this because of, in the past, toxic workplace environments, lack of pay, burnout. And we need to incentivize these people to come back to work. Andre, do you agree with him that the bottom line here is we need more money? Will more money fix this? I think it's not just about money. I think he makes a very good point about retention. You know, we're losing literally thousands of workers a month in Canada. Uh, we have, for example, we have as many nurses in Canada not working as nurses as we do working as nurses. The solution is at hand. We have to draw people back, but you have to change the work environment. As he said uh, very eloquently, it's a toxic work environment. And we have to remember that the conditions of work are the conditions of care. So if you treat workers badly, you have terrible care. We know that. So we this is really matters to each and every one of us that we fix this. Now, on the question of money, uh, I, I think uh, Ottawa, maybe they should spend more money, but I think we have to decide first where it's going to be spent. I, I think the provinces can't just say, give us more money and trust us because they haven't earned that trust. They haven't, they don't do a good job of spending the money they have now. They get $40 billion in federal money. There's very little accountability for that. Uh, so it has to, there has to be some give and take there. It's not just about gimme, gimme, gimme. It's what are we going to get in return as taxpayers? Andre, thank you for your analysis today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about cleaning up the Sea to Sky Corridor now and the communities in this beautiful region of our province, renowned for the mountain scenery, the world-class skiing, hiking, mountain biking, the beautiful lakes and rivers. This is a go-to destination not only for visitors but for residents of British Columbia. Everyone loves that part of the province, but that Sea to Sky Corridor, it is feeling the strains now of a growing population in that region. So we're seeing more litter, we're seeing more wildlife conflicts, degradation of the environment, illegal land use in that area. It's all taking away from the natural beauty And there's a new campaign now to reverse that trend, clean up this beautiful part of our province. Got Kirby Brown standing by from Tourism Squamish. Have a listen to this here first. Now, you might remember this guy. His name is Andy Sward. And a couple of years ago, he ran across Canada picking up garbage as he went. He did this sort of cross-country cleanup, trying to inspire others to clean up littered littered landscapes in Canada. And he made a stop in the Sea to Sky Corridor, uploaded a video about it. Let's uh, have a listen to that. Andy Sward here. Right now I'm doing a Sea to Sky Highway cleanup. That country is Squamish. The naysayers may say what I'm doing is a drop in the bucket. I like to think more positive and that um, it's a little bit inspiring when, when somebody does see me cleaning up their, their local neighborhood, then uh, and that gives uh, gives me a little hope that we're heading in the right direction. 
we have a beautiful country when you think about all the uh, the rivers and the lakes and the mountains and I think it's our uh, responsibility our, our, our duty really to uh, to protect those resources and 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 keep the country beautiful okay I'm sure Kirby Brown would agree with that Kirby is the chair of tourism Squamish general manager of the sea to sky gondola Kirby thank you for coming on thanks for having me Mike and uh, if you've got Andy's number I'll hire him today yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, he's a really cool guy, and he got a lot of attention for his cross-country cleanup, and uh, I think he made a lot of good points there. You know, he was walking along the highway, picking up trash, he was getting a lot of support, people would stop and thank him, and let's talk about your initiative now here to, mm. to sort of keep that sentiment going. Tell me about some of the challenges here in the Sea to Sky Corridor right now. Well, I think, you know, as anybody who's traveled up and down here in the past few years, even through the pandemic, has realized, like, one, it's a, like you described it, it's a really beautiful place. Like, it's uniquely situated on a planet. Um, you know, uh, Squamish itself is halfway between Whistler, the most, uh, you know, renowned ski resort on the continent. And Vancouver is, you know, commonly named one of the most livable cities on Earth. So it's just no surprise that people want to visit here, whether your locals are from afar. Um, but with our visitation, every single person brings with them a footprint. And, you know, what's been lacking pretend, potentially over the past, you know, few years, potentially decade or decades even, has been this real education around how we move into these, you know, wilderness interface spaces wisely and in a way that's sustainable for the ecosystems that we're enjoying. Um, and it's just time. I think it's time now to say, hey, with this level of visitation, we can all pause for a second uh, take a breath and hopefully just have a moment's reflection about uh, what we can do to make sure that our visit is as beneficial as possible and at least not degrading the environments that we're in. Right, and you and your colleagues have started this campaign now called the Don't Love It to Death campaign. Been checking out the website this morning, don'tloveittodeath.com. Uh, really mm. good website, and it's a really interesting campaign. Let's talk about some of the goals here. So let's talk about litter, first of all. Like, are you seeing a lot of garbage by the highway and stuff now? Yeah, I mean, the Andes of the world aside, and I just uh, there's a call out to there's a gentleman now who's doing the same thing, cruising up and down the corridor every single day, covering incredible mileage, cleaning up the highway all, all on his own. But the truth of it is we're seeing a lot more debris coming out of vehicles. Um, anytime there's a highway stoppage, people leave stuff behind. Uh, and that, of course, is an issue of itself, just from a beautiful uh, beautification perspective. But, of course, these things are also entering ditches, ditches enter streams, streams enter the ocean, and the litter kind of carries on that way. Um, and then, again, park uh, rec sites and trails, parks and rec sites and trails, um, are just seeing large volumes of people who um, don't really seem to get the ethos of uh, pack it in, pack it out, and that, you know, including things like car camping and just day visitation, right? So... It's uh, totally what we all want to do, get out and see these places and enjoy them. But if you're going to bring a cooler and then ditch your cans behind or think that somehow magically your campfire is going to disintegrate these materials into something that bears won't smell and wildlife won't be attracted to, then it's time to think about your impact all the more. So it's meant to be an attention-grabbing campaign, obviously, because we want to grab people's attention um, as they enter the corridor, have them pause for a moment, think about, oh, yeah, um, there are some things that I should do better. And also, hopefully in that moment when they're disembarking and heading home to wherever that might be, they're looking around to see what kind of uh, garbage they left behind and what kind of implications they've had for the area. All right, speaking to Kirby Brown, Tourism Squamish, about the new campaign to clean up the Sea to Sky Corridor. Speaking of bears, you're seeing more 
wildlife conflict in the region. Is that right? For sure. Over the past, again, this is uh, an issue decades in the making. You know, we, we are pushing ever further into wild spaces. And of course, this is not uh, our home first and foremost. It's theirs. So bears in particular, you know, are, are uh, under pressure. They need uh, wide tracts of terrain to, to forage appropriately so they can build that, you know, that big belly fat and, and head into a successful hibernation. And so if we leave stuff behind that smell uh, really tasty, they're going to find it. Um, and moreover, you know, the, if they get used to that source of food, uh, they're going to become a problem bear. They're going to begin putting people in jeopardy, and, and hence they're going to get destroyed. We see that happening over and over again in this corridor, and it's truly heartbreaking, um, you know, and completely unnecessary. You know, people can can uh, d- dispose of garbage in appropriate places. They can decache their food when they're camping, and uh, and overall just be way more sensitive to the fact that, you know, we all love seeing these animals, you know, and being in a a place in the world where they still exist in volumes that represent a truly natural and wild world. But, you know, our very own behavior is what's going to be the tipping point for them if we don't smarten up. So, um, you know, uh, I, my, my personal uh, mission in this really is, is around that. Let's, let's save some lives and begin protecting the ecosystem writ large. But bears are sort of at the pinnacle and apex of that ecosystem. So they need special attention. I'm I'm really impressed by the array of stakeholders and groups you've uh, assembled here to back this campaign. Uh, part of it is to protect the natural environment, like to enjoy it, right? To get outside, to enjoy these beautiful spaces, but also to preserve them and respect them. And I see you've got uh, Mountain Biking BC on board here with their mm-hmm. ride, res- ride Respectfully campaign. Tell me a little bit about that. Like, is mountain biking, is that something that can you know, cause erosion in some of these spaces that you, you, you know, you want to make sure that's being done appropriately? Well, I think, and, you know, mountain biking in particular, uh, and, and as a mountain biker, there's so many great community organizations, the one you just mentioned amongst them, that are trying to do really smart trail development that allows the, the ever-increasing volume of riders to get into re- really awesome terrain, but do so in a way that, you know, re- reduces the effects of erosion and tra- trail degradation. But, of course, we're pushing out into the mountains, again, into wild spaces where, where uh, those interactions with wildlife can occur. And, you know, we're, we're drinking and we're eating. You know, all of us have sticky power bars and sweet gels and stuff like that. And, and making sure that those that are new to the region understand that. Because many people do come from places where you're just not going to expect to, to run into a, a critter like a bear or, or any of the other ones that are out there. So, you know, it, it, their initiative, I think, is very honorable. Um, and I will say, like, like you mentioned, the, the group of people that are around us, you know, a lot of us are making our living uh, in tourism. And so you know, we, what we understand is that our job now isn't as much marketing the area as in making sure that, that our world, the one that we inhabit and make our living from, is kept as intact as possible and that we're beneficial to this place. So uh, it's really cool to see the number of organizations that, that, uh, that jumped into this uh, wholeheartedly, you know, from uh, Indigenous Tourism, tourism Association of B.C., you know, obviously the ministries of forest, lands, natural resources, and rural development. Um, but moreover, you know, tourism Whistler, tourism Squamish, tourism Pemberton, all these area uh, destination marketing organizations really saying, hey, our role is shifting and changing here. The place is very popular, and now we need to get onto the management side of this and really be partners in making sure that the people arrive have the tools to do so in a way that leaves this a place that we all love. Speaking of Kirby Brown from the Sea to Sky, Don't Love It to Death campaign. Just uh, digging further into the website here, Kirby, one of the other concerns identified in the campaign, illegal land use. 
What's going on there? Well, you know, um, one of the things that we saw throughout the course of the pandemic, of course, is, is people were desperate to find places outside where they could go and have some sense of freedom, um, connect with people uh, that they were otherwise missing. And so people just pushed out into the forest service roads beyond the rec sites and trails into areas um, that were relatively uh, untouched before that. Uh, there's one anecdotal story of uh, the police doing a roadblock on the Squamish Valley Road one night on a Friday two years ago and having over 3,000 vehicles pass by them by 5 p.m. And, and wow. our, our infra- there's just not, not enough infrastructure for that kind of, of traffic. And so people are making their own campsites, which means they're uh, trampling lo- local f- flora, you know, and they're leaving, uh, you know, fire pits and rings behind. Uh, and then they're going to they're going to go somewhere to use the bathroom. They're going to go somewhere to walk, connect to a trail. And so we're really just braiding out into the wilderness um, and, and just increasing the amount of degradation. And that creates a whole host of issues, uh, as you mentioned. So, um, you know, there's uh, many organizations that are building legal trails that are well sanctioned, well built um, and, and meant to be sensitive and light on the land. But then there's just, the, you know, the individual who, you know, is trying to have some fun with friends and and isn't aware of what they leave behind and how long-lasting those uh, effects can be. Right. It's a really interesting campaign. If people want more information on this or they want to get involved, where, do you, where would you direct them? Straight to the website that you've been looking at. Uh, that's, that's the spot for all that information. Um, the campaign will be supported by all the regional marketing organizations, so it'll be hard to miss it, um, from billboards to posters to signage to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, shows like yours helping us get the message out. Hopefully it'll be somewhat unavoidable when you enter this corridor. And it's a, it's a big region, right? We're talking about yeah. everything from north of Vancouver to Lillibet. So yeah. it's, a, it's a big area, but we've got lots of opportunities to intersect with people who are traveling through. And again, just have them pause for a second and be like, huh, maybe I could be smarter about uh, how I'm enjoying the area. Good luck with the campaign. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. All right, welcome back to the show. Did you know that today is International Cow Appreciation Day? I'm not making this up. Today is Cow Appreciation Day. Now, it was launched as kind of a marketing gag by Chick-fil-A, the fast food chicken outlet. And they launched that Cow Appreciation Day because they said the idea was cows want people to eat more chickens instead of beef. It's kind of funny. So they launched Cow Appreciation Day, which is today. And I'm a supporter of it. I think we should appreciate our cattle and our cows. I say that as a meat eater, as someone who enjoys a good steak or hamburger now and then. And I'll tell you what, somebody who I think needs to appreciate cows more are the people over at Health Canada We want to put those warning labels on ground beef. Did you hear about this? Health Canada is saying that ground beef is bad for your health, especially because of the saturated fat in ground beef. They want to put warning labels on your ground beef. Can you imagine that? You go to the grocery store, you're looking at your package of hamburger, and it's got a warning label on there, just like on a pack of cigarettes. The industry really pushing back on this. I don't blame them. I'm going to speak to Kevin Boone about this in a moment. First, have a listen to this. University professor Sylvain Charlebois, he's been a frequent guest on this show. Here he is talking about these warning labels on beef. Have a listen. 
50% of beef consumed in Canada is ground. With inflation a major issue at the grocery store, ground meat prices have remained more stable than others. When you think about protein for affordability, you're basically going to be discouraging Canadians uh, from eating these products that are still relatively affordable compared to other cuts. So you have to wonder whether or not it's the right time to do this. Yeah, I don't think it's the right time to put warning labels on ground beef myself. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Kevin Boone, General Manager of the BC Cattlemen's Association, representing cattle ranchers in British Columbia. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Kevin, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. Hey, Kevin, happy Cow Appreciation Day. <laughs> well, and, and back to you. They're, they are underappreciated. I will guarantee you that, and I could fill you in on some of the other areas that we we can appreciate them other than just uh, really good, wholesome food. So, Yeah, how do you think that the, the industry, I mean, this is a tough time for this industry right now, right? We're going through inflation, we've gone through COVID, we've gone through wildfires and droughts and all the rest of it. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's a challenging industry and it's a challenging um, uh, portion of the food production, but it's a very important part. Uh, you know, the, the beef around the world uh, has been consumed in one manner or another for, for centuries, and it's a very important part of it. And, you know, we can't... Um, a lot of times I think special interests uh, get in the way of, of reality and common sense. Yeah, how big is the cattle ranching industry in British Columbia right now? Uh, British Columbia is relatively small uh, in comparison to the rest of Canada. We have about uh, 5% of the national uh, cow herd. Uh, That doesn't mean we feed them right to the end, but that's the starting phase. So we've got, you know, to compare you, um, we've got about... 500,000 head of, of cattle here in British Columbia that are primary uh, grass um, production, uh, the cow-calf. And Alberta, in contrast, has about 4 million uh, wow. of those cows out there. So, I mean, but we've got a terrain here that can't grow canola, can't grow barley, can't grow wheat uh, and vegetables, but we can harvest that grass that is growing naturally. And so it's not as plen- as as plentiful in that it's different varieties. There's a whole raft of things in there, Mike, that I could spend two days explaining the value. But if you look at, and one of those added benefits is when we eat that grass, we reduce the risk of a wildfire. We uh, make it so that that's replenishing. It's it's building part of the whole ecosystem. We've not seen the buffalo and the, the, the stuff that was there for centuries. The cattle are taking the place to keep that ecosystem healthy. Right, and your association represents, like, the cattle we're talking about. These are beef cattle, right? Like, the dairy, the dairy cows are separate, right? It, exactly. Um, yeah. The dairy cattle, when they have um, fulfilled their, their uh, production of milk, when they get to that age where they need to retire from that, they do become part of the beef chain as well, though. Oh, I okay. <laughs> Move on to the beef chain. All right. All right. <laughs> okay, Kevin, what do you think about this Health Canada idea to put a warning label on ground beef? Well, it's it's actually ridiculous, and it actually it I think would confuse the consumer more than anything. Uh, we're taking and putting it into a category uh, of processed, where really the only it's a single ingredient product that is ground. It's altered by being ground. Everything else that falls into the Health Canada uh, front of package labeling are things 
that are added uh, to it, like uh, your potato chips, your processed product, and and stuff where you've got a list of ingredients that's uh, three three miles long. This is one ingredient, and we all know what's there. And the saturated, unsaturated fat level, they're in everything, and it's a matter of the quantities. But you made a great point that with over 50%, or I think it was uh, uh, Sylvain that made it, that over 50% of our ground product, and that's not just beef, that's poultry, everything goes into ground. If you start putting a labeling on that, you're going to take away uh, options from people that don't understand necessarily the process or what uh, it goes into that, and they're going to see it as a hazard uh, rather than a really high value product for for their health. The iron, the zinc, the uh, products that uh, minerals and and vitamins that come through it are often overlooked and. Just going to add on this, Health Canada is backed off and it is now exempt and they will not be doing front of package labeling anymore and it would be in large part to the campaign done not just by the industry but by the consumers that supported it and came out in the way they did. Okay, so so Health Canada has backed off on this now, is that right? That's correct, yes. Oh, uh, they made an announcement, news. I believe, Thursday. So. Oh, okay, that, I missed that. I get, that is good to hear, and I'm, and I'm glad to hear it. And I, and I congratulate you and your colleagues for effectively putting this issue on, on the map in Canada and putting some pressure on, on Health Canada, because I, I think this was ridiculous as well. Like, I was speaking to one of your colleagues about this issue a few weeks ago, and she pointed out to me that, you know, if you went to a grocery store, if this had gone through... And you go to a grocery store and let's say you want to buy a, a sirloin roast or a sirloin steak, that would not have had a, a warning label on it. But if you ask the butcher, could you ground this up for me, put it through a meat grinder, I'd like to make some hamburgers out of it, then it would have the warning label. Yeah. Right? Like, it, does that, it doesn't does this make, make any, much sense. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> it, like, it, what is up with that? Yeah, it's where um, Health Canada is. It, it it almost feels like they've run out of things to put labels on, so let's start putting things on, on the fringe item sort of deal. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Okay, where are we at right now in terms of for the, for the cattle ranchers in British Columbia? Uh, we're getting into the, the summer months now. Weather is getting warmer. Uh, are there concerns? Are there, there continue to always be fear about wildfires and evacuating animals out of the path of wildfires, right? Like, I've, and I, you and I have talked before about the need to do a better system of like warning, warning cattle ranchers about approaching fires, right? Right. So, uh, yeah, and, and the good news is this year uh, we've had a lot of precipitation, especially in the south where it tends to get more dry. So we have have seen, you know, where that fire risk is way low, and that is such a welcome relief. But yeah. keep in mind that as we've got this precipitation, we've seen a lot more growth of forage in there. So if it does turn dry, we've got a lot of fuel out there. So our cattle are out there doing their best to eat it down right now to try and reduce that. But in that, we have learned so many things from the fires of 17, 18, and 21 as to how to pre uh, uh build our, our our resources and so one of them and the biggest thing for any of this is communication we've worked very hard with uh, bc wildfire service and the like to try and enhance that we've got uh, ranch liaisons or uh, uh, 
ag liaisons really out there that uh, we're building chains of communication. Those are all going to help. There's uh, wildfire preparedness where we're doing targeted grazing. There is a whole hamperful of uh, things going on out there, Mike. Kevin, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Anytime, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity.